Well, good morning again. It's a little bit surreal to be like on this. I, I didn't exactly know what to do. I, I thought, you know, I might have to get my own podium because not all of us have arm surgery and have to get other people to carry their podiums and stuff for them. But uh, other than that, we, I, I'm excited. I am thankful to get the chance uh, to share from God's word with you uh, today. Uh, James did warn me, y'all are really, really slow listeners for some reason. Um, and so I got I to gotta speed it up so that y'all can listen a little faster, but uh, that's all right. So, uh, you know, we recently moved here, moved to Powhatan. We're loving it. Uh, anytime you get a new house, you're looking at different things. Uh, you're always wondering, like, what's on the project list? What's, what's on the never-ending to-do list of being a homeowner? Um, you know, and I, I consider myself to be a pretty handy guy. Uh, I, I was the principal head of school uh, of a school that was in a building that was over 50 years old. So uh, I learned a lot about building systems that constantly needed repair uh, there. I, even before that, though, we were married, and every, uh, every, every married man learns some basic home maintenance as soon as you get married. Because uh, when you get married, all of a sudden, this, this other human is now in your life who comes into the bathroom with multiple appliances that are required in order for the day to get started. You know, each of those appliances as a new married couple produces enough heat to heat your entire apartment and draws enough electricity to uh, power a small country. So you quickly learn where the breaker panel is, right? And then when you go to buy your first house, you quickly learn where that breaker panel is. And then if you buy another house, you realize that you really want an indoor breaker panel. Otherwise, you're going to be trudging through the snow to turn on the breaker so that your wife can straighten the hair that she's about to put a hat on. <laughs> I learned that lesson. But me being a philosophical guy, I wanted to know the why of those, those circuit breakers. How do they work? Why does a breaker trip? And there's some of you guys who are super handy, electricians in here, builders. But at the most basic level, that appliance is drawing electricity. The wiring in your walls is transmitting that electricity. But that wiring has a resistance. It can only carry so much. And when the energy in that wire that is being drawn, when it... it it exceeds what that wire can handle, it produces heat. That circuit breaker exists so that when more energy is being drawn than it can handle, it cuts off the electricity so that a fire is not started in your wall. And when that breaker trips, you have a few options. Number one is what most of us do. We go to the panel, we flip the breaker, we reheat those wires back up, and then it trips again, we rinse and repeat. Two, don't do this. You can replace that breaker with a higher capacity breaker. It's probably the worst thing you could do because you're basically telling it, hey, I'm going to let you get even hotter in the walls before you provide us with a safety switch. Don't do that. The other thing you can do is you can rewire the circuit. You can use a larger gauge wire, which allows it to transmit more electricity with less resistance, thus less heat operating more safely. So... As a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, we know that the preaching of the Word brings faith. 
Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of God. Jesus prayed, sanctify them. This is his prayer for us. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We're called in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The issue is sometimes we come across a passage of scripture that is so challenging It's so transformative, it can create so much heat in our minds that the circuit breaker of our heart trips. The power of that truth never makes it from our mind to our heart. When that happens, we really have the same three options as the actual circuit breaker in our house. When we let our heart trip, cutting off the power of the passage, we we just go out of church, we spend the next week kind of reconnecting things, putting things back together, only to come back the next week, feel the heat of Scripture again, and hope that the breaker won't trip this week. Or two, we can increase the capacity of our Bible intake. We double down on reading our Bible, doing our devotions. Uh, We read all the books. We listen to all the podcasts. All the while, we don't realize that the heat that is created by the sheer volume of truth we are drawing is heating up our hearts to the point where they get burned out. Our faith gets destroyed by the heat created by the pressure to be transformed. The third thing we can do is we can increase the wiring between our head and our heart. The Bible clearly gives us ways in which to do this. We meditate on Scripture, you know, not just reading Scripture, but actually meditating. And and that's a Christian word, right? That's not some weird New Age word. We've had that word and need to take it back. Because we should meditate, deeply think on Scripture. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not. And then it says, on his word he meditates day and night. We can pray. We can pray through that Scripture that we're reading. We can be an intimate fellowship that leads to authentic accountability within the church. We keep in step with the Spirit who is the one who sanctifies us in the truth. All of those help us to increase the gauge of the wires in our life. Uh, Each of us come with different gauges. We have different levels of faith, and we must ask God to grant us ever-increasing faith so that we can continually be transformed. You know, C.S. Lewis said at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia series, further up and further in is the experience when we are in the presence of God. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 13, the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Our ability to allow the power of God to transform us, our ability to apply the disciplines of the faith to let the Spirit sanctify us is massively important, especially when we come to passages like today's passage. There are some passages that by nature produce a lot of heat. I'm going to flip that switch on real quick for you and then off so that we don't heat things up too fast. And then uh, we're going to pray and ask God to help us. Uh, The two verses in the New Testament that produce just about more heat than any other ones are both found in what we're about to read. I'm going to tell you what they are. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Sell all your possessions and give them to the needy. That's hot. 
that produces heat in our minds. So let's pray that over the next few minutes, God will allow us to be transformed by his word rather than being burned up by it. Father, we come to you today, even as we just sang, open up our eyes in wonder and show us who you are and fill us with your heart. God, that is our desire, and we know that we can see who you are through the word you have given us, through the life of Christ and his teachings. Father, these are hard, challenging words, and we must be prepared to receive them, and we pray for your grace, we pray for your spirit to let your words fall on those who have ears to hear. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Because, you know, if there's one thing that will trip the breaker of people's minds, it's talking about money. Am I right? Amen. Got my first amen from Mark. I'm, I'm feeling good. That's why I'm thankful, you know, that Pastor James uh, planned out the preaching schedule and allowed me to preach this parable. You know, that was really kind of him. Um, but really, I probably wouldn't have wanted to preach about hypocrisy either because that gets pretty hot too. Uh, but there is one benefit to preaching straight through a book of the Bible, is there not? No one can accuse you of cherry picking. No one can accuse you of choosing passages that serve your own purpose. So here we are at the next pericope, to use James's favorite technical term. Uh, where are we in Luke right now? Jesus has set his gaze toward Jerusalem. He's traveling toward the city knowing that entering Jerusalem will result in his death. He has foretold it. He's preparing his disciples for it. His interactions with the religious leaders are becoming more and more hostile and more and more antagonistic. In Luke 8, he tells a parable of the sower, and he says, To you it has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. When we read these parables, we have to understand that some people just don't get it. The parables are indirect stories that are told to make a point, but even more than make a point, they are made to call people to a response and to action. And a person's response to a parable, as we see in the Pharisees' response over and over again, a person's response to a parable reveals the condition of their hearts. So we have seen over the last two weeks that Jesus warns us of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He warned us to have a healthy fear of God rather than a fear of worldly things. So why would Luke place this parable about riches following those passages? You know, contrary to the popular definition of hypocrisy, it's not a failure to practice what you preach. Hypocrisy is when your behavior doesn't align with what you say you believe. So the Pharisees said they believe in God, they believe in his kingdom, but their behavior did not show that belief. Likewise, people say they have a reverence for God and awe and acknowledgement of his supreme rule over creation, yet their lifestyle shows that they actually fear man, not God. That too is hypocrisy. A disconnect between what you do and what you say you believe. 
It is in this context that we read the parable of the rich fool. So turn with me to Luke. We are in chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, that's Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable. You ever notice Jesus like answer somebody and then like when he jumps into a parable, you know, man, I asked the wrong question. <laughs> oh man, I'm in trouble. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul. Did any of you talk to your soul like that? Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is a challenging passage to preach because almost everyone in this room would affirm with their mouths, and probably a few amens, that the love of money is the root of all types of evils. And let's be honest, anyone who desires to know God and spends any bit of time thinking about the meaning of this parable probably knows what it means. But let's make a few observations here. First observation, it is not wrong to be rich. Nowhere in this passage does Jesus give us any word of condemnation for the man being rich. In fact, it says... The land of a rich man produced plentifully. That would have been a word of blessing in the ears of the Jews. They directly linked the production of the land with the blessing of God. This man's riches, without a doubt in their mind as they hear this story, were God-given and God-ordained riches. There's nothing wrong with being rich. That is, there's nothing sinful about being wealthy. It is also not wrong to save and plan ahead. We know that from many other stories in Scripture that planning ahead and storing up is not sinful. Joseph saved the entire nation of Egypt and a lot of the nations around Egypt as well because of his ability to save up God's blessings in preparation for times of leanness. To a Jew, it would have been sinful to not provide provision for the future. Even more, they didn't offer tithes weekly. They offered their tithe every three years. So they had to have a place to store up their goods. It wasn't wrong to save and store up. So the point of this parable then is this. Jesus is condemning the increasing of your savings and wealth at the expense of kingdom work. Jesus is getting to the man's heart, his attitude about the kingdom of God. And the, the first thing that we see, this first attitude, 
is that pride in your riches produces self-reliance. This man trusted in his stored-up riches to provide all that he needs. What does that look like in our world? What does that look like? What was the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be rich towards the kingdom of God? A lot of times we think of the kingdom of God as being this future thing. You know, if you're an end times person and you love talking about the millennium and all of these glorious things, but that, that's not the whole of the kingdom of God. Folks, the kingdom of God is here and now. Jesus said that. He said, the kingdom has come upon you. He said, the kingdom has come near you. The kingdom is here. Yes, there is a future full realization of the kingdom in which uh, the war between the two kingdoms is going to be over. Man, won't that be a great day? The war is going to be over, but the kingdom is here and now because he's calling us to be rich towards it. You know, we're, we're no longer a, uh, a primarily agrarian society where people are growing uh, crops and and producing your own food. And so we had a little bit of the disconnect between what has made us recognize our dependence on God. But we have people in this church who they are in the agriculture business. And when it doesn't rain, stuff gets sticky. And when it's too hot, it, it's a problem. And there are people in the agriculture business who knows you can follow the formula, you can do all the right things, but man, it is God who gives the growth. And so those people have a little bit more of an insight on dependence on God. We in the 21st century have, have, have we miss that a little bit because if it doesn't rain or if it's 100 degrees outside, we go in the air conditioning and don't realize what the toll that that's taking. So, sorry, that was a little side note about agriculture. Uh, so for me, really, the most interesting part of uh, verse 21 is that it comes right before verse 22. Yeah, somebody got that joke. 21 comes before 22, just about in every chapter. Jesus says, therefore, look at verse 22. And he said to his disciples, therefore, and we all know that the key word tells us that these two passages are linked together. And in fact, verse 22 and following are directly, directly related to and a result of verses 13 through 21. So let's read this next section together because they, they really do go together. Luke 12 Verse 22, he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither reap nor sow, they have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Why on earth would Jesus, immediately following a parable about an exceedingly wealthy man, why would he say, do not be anxious about your basic life needs? Food, health, clothing. The man in the parable obviously had no worry about these things, but why does he tell a parable and that parable results in, therefore do not be anxious? Verse 21 says the, the parable describes the person who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So we said parables always call people to action. Well, the call to action of this parable of the rich fool is we need to be rich toward God. The command to not be anxious follows immediately because you might want to write this down. The person who is rich towards God will have times when their generosity interferes with their ability to meet their own basic needs. Let me say that again. The person who is rich toward God will have times when their generosity interferes with their ability to meet their own basic needs. You know, the title of this sermon series, uh, Luke, we've only been in it for about two and a half decades, um, is the upside-down kingdom, in case you forgot that initial uh, sermon title. Nothing sounds more upside-down than being generous to the point you can't even meet your own basic needs. But that's what we're called to do. As with all gospel reversals, there's an opposite temptation pulling us back, which leads us to our second attitude toward money that's spelled out in, in this chapter. Anxiety about lack of riches produces self-reliance. When we perceive that our basic needs might not be met, our tendency is to tighten up, figure out how we can make it work for ourselves. Isn't it interesting that both ends of the spectrum... The temptation is reliance on self and not on God. Isn't that interesting? The rich man relied on his riches. The one who is obviously anxious about basic needs falls into self-reliance, toiling and spinning for themselves. We made some observations about that rich fool. Let's make a few observations about this admonition to anxiety. He says, the sovereign creator extravagantly takes care of his entire creation of which we are a part. And he uses these two uh, pictures. We have the ravens. They don't do anything to get food. They just get food. It says they neither sow nor reap. They don't have storehouses. They don't have barns. And yet God feeds them. And we are more valuable than they are. He says, look at the lilies. They don't grow, they don't spin, they don't do anything, yet God gives them clothing 
an appearance that is greater than Solomon, the greatest king, the most extravagant king in the history of Israel, are not, is not even clothed like the flower of the field. And God will provide for us. Now, now a problem is our perception of what is necessary skews our recognition of provision. Am I right? You know, we, we can, well, I can, yeah, we can do a whole other sermon series on things that we need versus things that we want. You know, you, we could talk about kids and cell phones. We can talk about all of these things. But yeah, those, we, we've heard that a million times. But we in the 21st century, especially in America, are so far removed, the line between needs and wants is so skewed, we demand that at the seafood restaurant, we have Alaskan snow crab and Maine lobster, both equally fresh on the menu of a restaurant in Texas. Am I right? Oh, you don't have the lobster today? Oh man, you're at a snow crab? We're in Virginia, we shouldn't have Alaskan snow crab here. Yeah, I know, that's extreme because not everybody's going to the restaurant and eating lobster, but most of y'all are going to go to a, a Mexican restaurant today and uh, eat those avocados that are from Mexico. Am I right? Y'all, we don't need avocados from Mexico. We live in Virginia, like one of the greatest states that grows just about everything we could possibly want, yet we want avocados from Mexico, bananas and oranges from Brazil. We don't need those things. But most of us, when we put basic needs on our shopping list, what's going to be on there? Oranges, bananas, those things that we consider our basic needs, when really we need to be eating apples from the orchard right up the road. All right, y'all got me started. So, so. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Got to find my spot again. Anyways, so the sovereign creator takes care of his entire creation. Uh, also, verse 30, worry and anxiety and toil over those needs is the way unbelievers take care of themselves. You see that in verse 30? It says, all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. They're disconnected from him, and so they spend their time toiling and spinning because they, it is a need. They're just not connected to the one who can provide for their needs. And so uh, we're, we're called to be different than the world. And really, this, this section here should be, should be the most encouraging part of this entire chapter. We got hypocrisy, we got all kinds of things coming up in chapter 12. Y'all be ready. This is the encouraging part of the chapter where a person who gives wholeheartedly to the advance of the kingdom of God has the biblical promise that their needs will be met by God himself. Church, take heart. The king takes care of his people. The creator and sustainer of everything you see has said, if I clothe the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in heaven, how much more will I clothe you? Verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Take that in. God takes pleasure in giving you his kingdom. You don't earn it. 
You don't have to get on your knees and beg him to hopefully show you a little piece or the backside of his glory like Moses did. Lord, please show me your glory. And he passes it by. It is his good pleasure to give you what is his. The king will take care of his people. We have people in this congregation who have been provided for by other people in this congregation in ways that baffle the minds of unbelievers. It's going on in our church right now. They say, wait, you mean people in your church like split wood and load up their trailers and bring it to your house so that you can heat your house? Yeah, that's what my church does. Wait, people in your church just like drop groceries off or give you the meat that they got from hunting or fishing and they just bring it over so that you can have dinner? Yeah, that happens in our church. You mean people from your church drive you to your doctor's appointments? People from your church are, are, are watching your kids right now so you can go on a date? Are you paying them? No, they're just watching our kids. Wait, the people from your church pooled together and bought you a car? Y'all, that baffles the world. And those things have happened and are happening in this church right now. So you need to be encouraged because the king takes care of his people. Can anyone in this room honestly say that a committed, engaged, generous, sacrificially serving, covenant-keeping member of this church will end up homeless and hungry and without clothes? Will that happen? No. It's not going to happen. Of course not. The people who, are, who, who engage with and invest in their local church have full confidence that their needs will be met by God through his body, through the church. The problem arises when we're not committed, engaged, generous, serving, covenant-keeping. Instead, we are committed as long as it doesn't interfere with soccer or hunting or dance or seven degree, 70 degrees and sunny. Or we don't like singing out loud and I'm definitely not going to bring my Bibles to church or take notes and forget about small groups. <laughs> or... We ask, what must I drop in the offering plate? Or we hope Jennifer doesn't call us to serve in preschool. Definitely not going to members' meetings because I don't really care about the business of the church. Problem arises when we're church consumers, not church members. Yeah, I'm rubbing, I got, I got one. I'm rubbing people the wrong way, and I haven't even told you what to do with your money yet. I'm, I'm, going, I'm, I'm doing good. <laughs> Folks, the committed church member will have their needs met every time. You can take that to the bank. The reality is, we as church leaders, man, this rubs me the wrong way as a, as a pastor. We find out about people's needs well after the situation. Do you know that? It's like two or three times a week, we get a phone call. Did you know that this person just had this happen and it's over now? Well, what are we supposed to do? How can we meet your needs if we don't know about it? The problem is the average church consumer in times of struggle becomes anxious about their basic needs. They fall into self-reliance rather than allowing God to meet their needs through the intimate relationships that are being built as part of the church community. If you have a need, please let us know. Folks, we got a benevolence thing that hasn't been touched in like months because people don't tell us when they have a problem or a need. 
The church is here to be the kingdom of God, the citizens of God, helping each other. Let us know if you have a problem. Let us know if you need a ride to church. Let us know if you need a ride to the doctor. We will take care of you, I promise. That's what the church does. Sorry, I'm getting going again. If pride in riches and anxiety about lack of riches They both produce self-reliance. Here's the remedy that Jesus is proposing. Here it is. God provides for us so that you can invest in his kingdom on earth. And then focusing on kingdom building results in your own needs being met by other kingdom citizens. That's part of being in the community and the kingdom of God. So, you know, this section of scripture contains two of the most well-known one-liners in the New Testament. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The focus of this passage is richness of heart. As kingdom citizens, we should have a heart condition that results in outward symptoms. And we just sang a song, show me who you are and fill me with your heart. We just sang those words. We need the heart of God. Does your heart beat for the kingdom of God? Are you pursuing it and investing in it as if your future may depend on it? Are you doing what verse 33 commands? Provide for yourself money bags. You know, they didn't have like, they didn't have punctuation in ancient Greek but I'm pretty sure there's air quotes there for money bags. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail. All of this comes back to that hypocrisy conversation. Does your use of God's provision in your life align with what you say you believe? Do you believe that... God took on flesh, lived a sinless life, the sinless life that we could not live in order that he could be the perfect sacrifice that we could not offer, and then was crucified and buried in a tomb only to be raised to life and ascended into glory in heaven, only then to send the Holy Spirit through whom we are now his born-again church, and we get to usher forth the kingdom of God as his ambassadors on this earth, waiting for the day in which our king returns in his full glory to judge the deeds of the living and the dead and say either, well done, good and faithful servant, Or to say is verse 20, you fool. Man, can you imagine getting to the end of your life with all of the blessings that God has given you? And God's response to is, you fool. Man. So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. If parables require a response, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be rich towards God and to seek his kingdom? It's probably one of the most important questions that we can draw from this. 
And the reality is anyone who is honest with themselves can take a few minutes and know whether or not they are rich towards the kingdom, whether they're generous with their resources, whether they are sacrificial in their lifestyle. You know, recognition is not the problem. Transforming, being transformed, being reformed, new lifestyles and new habits, that's the hard part. We must be willing to radically transform our use of financial resources. So what's the proper response? When you realize that your finances might be serving you more than they are serving the kingdom of God. There's five responses. Some are good, some are not so good. The first one, build a bigger barn. It's an option. You can choose that. It also comes with consequences. Our use of money reveals what we truly believe. 1 Corinthians 15 says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Jesus is not risen, and we are not to follow him into eternal life, then we should eat and drink and be merry, because tomorrow we die. But if Jesus is risen, and we are to follow him into his eternal kingdom, then is it not wiser to invest in the eternal kingdom over things that pass away? James says, show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You say that you believe your finances might be revealing if you're a liar. Second response, you can give some so that you feel better. Also an option, right? Also comes with consequences. James alluded to this, I think it was last week, Acts chapter 5. Starting in verse 1, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold... Was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Notice, it's a matter of the heart. You have lied not to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. And then it goes on and talks about what happened to his wife. Also not a great ending for her. Peter said, this is yours to do with what you want. But Ananias and his wife were condemned for trying to use a portion of their wealth to fool themselves and others into thinking they were being generous. It wasn't generosity, it was self-aggrandizement, even though they were giving. Third option, you can give some out of gratitude and generosity. We're getting better now. Luke chapter 19, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus did not earn his salvation by giving to the poor and returning what he swindled. It was his response to his new relationship with Jesus 
that caused him to overflow with generosity. Notice, he gave the same amount. He gave half. Ananias and Sapphira gave half. It's not about the number. It's about the heart of our giving. Nowhere are we told that Jesus commanded Zacchaeus to give back. It was his gratitude and a new spirit of generosity that led him to give some of his wealth. Response four, you can give sacrificially. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. She put her basic needs at risk. Sacrificial giving is the highest form of giving in God's economy. Giving out of your abundance is expected. It is literally the purpose of God's blessing in your life. But giving that causes you to lack something does two things. It shows in whom your faith and trust lie. And as we said, it gives the church an opportunity to meet your needs when they arise. If, you, if you're a person with a reputation of giving all that you can and more to people in need, you can have confidence in how church members, the people of the kingdom of God, will respond when you come across a difficult time. You have confidence in that. Last response, sell everything. Verse 33 of our passage Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Luke chapter 18, verse 22. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. If we go back to the opening verses of our passage today, we have a man that is arguing for his share of his inheritance, and Jesus' response is not, yeah, split it up, yeah, go figure it out. He tells a parable, gives an explanation, and the explanation is, don't look for your inheritance, sell everything. Whether or not we like it, this must be one of the options on the menu of responses. But Jesus doesn't call everyone to this response. As we saw with Zacchaeus, we saw other rich people in Scripture. That's not the response for everyone, but your heart must be open to the obedience of this call here in our passage. Uh, As the most extreme of the responses, I would suggest that you, and if you're married, your family, spend some time discerning if this is the call that Jesus is placing on your life. And once or if you determine that it's not your calling, only then can you determine in what ways you will be rich towards the kingdom. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but set their hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. In that way, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future 
so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, there are circuit breakers tripping all over the church. People are tripping. Sorry. Let me stop here and say someone is going to complain that I'm trying to make people feel guilty. That I'm guilting people into giving money to the church. Well, I have two responses for that. First, the people who feel guilty should spend some time in prayer to determine whether or not they actually are guilty. That's always a good, that's a, you know. Uh, and, and I've been preparing this sermon for a couple weeks. There, there's been a whole lot of plank removing and spec seeing. It, this, preaching this has caused a lot of self-introspection for me and for my wife. Um, it's not easy. But a person who can stand before the Lord and confidently say, I lived a generous life, that person does not feel guilty at what I'm saying. There are people in this room whose generous hearts are evident to every single one of us. We know people in this room who would give us the shirt off their back if we needed it. There are single moms in this room who are doing everything they can to keep them and their children engaged in the church. And they don't need to hear right now, you need to give more. They need to hear the part of this that says, all these things will be added to you for your sacrifice. Because they're already giving it all. If you're feeling guilty or defensive or cynical, that's between you and God. You can come talk to me if I've offended you in some way. We'll have a response time. I'll be standing right up here. You can come punch me in the face if you want. I, I would encourage you to talk to God first before the punching. <laughs> but there are people in this room who need to hear that their sacrifices will be rewarded. Because there are many people in this church who give and sacrifice much for the kingdom of God. Second, I, I, I know there are some skeptics here. They're thinking he's the administrative pastor. This is one more way for the church to do a fundraiser. They want or need money to increase the church budget so that they can, and then fill in the blank with whatever activity you don't approve of. Let me tell you this. If you walk away from this service, sell everything that you have, and invest it in kingdom purposes, and don't give a penny to Red Lane Baptist Church, I'm fine with that. This church has been here for almost 200 years, and if the Lord wills, it'll be here for another 200 what I'm talking about. This is not some fundraising ploy. I'm talking about a reversal of priorities. The reversal that Jesus put in front of the Pharisees and the disciples when he ushered in his kingdom. So with that said, y'all need to listen a little bit faster. With that said, here are a few reasons why I think giving to your local church is a good thing. It's not the entirety of being rich towards the kingdom, but the local church, one, provides a physical location and facilities around which the community of believers can obey the commands to gather for worship and for fellowship. We know in the early church, it was often the rich who provided the physical locations, often their homes, where the church would meet. Giving to your local church helps us have a place where we can come together and worship. That's good. Second, the church helps teach you it also helps you train your children. 
You know, it, anybody who has kids knows they're expensive. Teaching them a Sunday school is expensive. It costs the church like $10,000 on top of what the parents pay to go to camp. Your giving helps those kids get to camp, which is one of the more formative activities in the life of a teenager. A lot of us remember camp when we were teenagers. Those are important times, and your giving helps shape those. Third, the church researches and vets opportunities for you to get involved in outside kingdom work. You know, foreign missions opportunities, local service choices, benevolence needs. We have a complex society. Voices screaming for your attention, and it's difficult to know who to trust sometimes. We, we provide a screen. It, it's weekly that I get a call. Hey, have you heard of this group? Hey, I'm, th- I got, I'm thinking about getting involved in this. What do you know about them? Hey, I'm trying to listen to this music. What do you know about this church who produces this music? Is it good and right and gospel-centered? And we as the church and the leaders and the elders and the small group leaders can provide a filter to help you know how to better invest in the kingdom. And lastly, the church trains leaders, both staff and non-staff, who, as Hebrews, I think it's 13, says, keep watch over your souls. Um, Look over your well-being. I'm grateful that the local church has helped me and uh, put me through my theological education in seminary. I believe that has borne fruit in the local church. Thankful we have the cooperative program and the Southern Baptist Convention meeting this week provides Bible-believing seminaries, pastors, wives, institutes. Your support of the local church makes those seminaries possible. Uh, I'm thankful for the worship and tech conference. We had a number of people go to that. This, I think it was last weekend. They went to that. It helps them to be confident in their job up there to create an, a distraction-free environment so that you can hear my voice, that you can be encouraged by the band and the vocalists. Your giving sent them to that conference, which allows them to do that for you on a weekly basis. Giving to the local church is... is is useful. Participation as an active member of your local church to which you give sacrificially, I would say, is the primary way in which you invest in the kingdom of God. As your administrative pastor, most, most of y'all only know me as the worship pastor, but I also do administration here. I'm committed to running a clean, tight ship that allows the most dollars possible to go towards kingdom, gospel-centered activities Um, That's a part of my job. Uh, So that leaves us with one thing. You know, Pastor James, he loves preaching the tithe. James loves the tithe. He, He says it's the starting place for generosity. And I think he's probably right. But let's be honest, most of us would probably prefer a tithe over sacrificial giving. That's what we saw the Pharisees doing a few weeks ago when James was preaching. It says they, they were tithing mint and dill and every herb. They were literally going to their wives' herb garden, picking off leaves to make sure that they gave the right percentage of those weeds. It's not church giving is a heart issue, not a numbers issue. There are people in here who give 10%, not bad an eye. Others, 10% throws you into the category of anxiety. And some others, giving 10% would cause you to fail on obligations and contracts that you have already made. 
Side note, if you're in that situation, we have Financial Peace University here at the church, and we have financial coaches who can help you get to a place of financial freedom. But this passage calls us to be focused on faithful use of our resources, not any specific amount. So God is concerned with your heart. What are we being rich toward? College funds, retirement plans, vacation budgets, nice, bright, shiny toys. None of those are bad in and of themselves. Are we rich towards kingdom work? Are we rich toward the poor? Are we rich toward evangelism? As we move into our response time, the question is this, how shall I respond? First, we don't buy the kingdom. We know that. The first response always must be to acknowledge the sovereignty of God over your life. You come to the Father through the reconciliation that is found in Jesus. Until this, you are a foreigner. You are outside of the kingdom, and you can't do its work. But foreign investments do not buy citizenship in the kingdom. Citizenship is purchased only by the blood of Jesus. So if you desire to enter the kingdom, there, we're going to have some people. I'm going to have Tim come up. I'll be up here who can help talk you through what it means to receive the gift of salvation in Christ. For those of us who are citizens of the kingdom, we need to evaluate if we are being rich toward God and his kingdom. Again, it's not a sales pitch. We already took up the offering. We do that on purpose. You want to sell everything, give it to our church plant in Blacksburg? Great. They need it. Commit to being involved as an active member of your church. Have a voice in the budget. It's coming up. We're building it. Demand that the church invest in gospel work. Hold the church accountable for its resources. Give to meet those resources. How do you be rich towards God? You decide in your heart what is faithful, what is sacrificial giving, what that looks like for you and your family. You decide what areas of the kingdom you would like to see strengthened and give to that. The elders and the pastors of this church were the shepherds who desire to strengthen this entire flock. So uh, your investment in the local church spills out and over to the people around you as you give. So we're about to sing a song. For most of us, uh, the length of that song is probably all that we need to discern whether or not our lives are reflective of generous, sacrificial, kingdom-focused living. Um, so sometimes externalizing a decision is necessary to help make that decision real. So I, a few leaders, will be up here. If uh, you want to come up and say, hey, today I'm committing that I'm going to start giving, or today I'm going to commit to serve, or today I'm going to commit to start coming to church more, sometimes just saying it to somebody makes it a little more real. Uh, we're here to support you. We are here to encourage you in what the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do. So uh, if you would stand with me, let's pray, and then we will respond as Christ leads. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you that um, it challenges us. It hits us at the heart, and it hits us at what we value the most. And God, we... Um, we feel the heat of your word as you call us to a reversal in our priorities. You call us to a reversal of our loyalties. God, we pray that by your spirit you will prompt each person in this room, each family, to respond as your spirit 
desires them to, whether it's in, in responding in salvation, saying, I don't, even, I don't even know what this kingdom stuff is about. Others, Lord, you, you're prompting them to be more generous, to be more open, to be more flexible, to invest time rather than resources, to uh, invest energy rather than something else, God. You call each of us based on the condition of our hearts. So I pray that as we sing this song, you will um, you'll speak to us and we will recognize uh, the voice inside of us that is uh, calling us. Lord, help us to be rich in faith and rich towards your kingdom so that you are made famous in this world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.